Criminal defense attorney Brian McMonagle takes us on a journey covering his incredible career from the hung jury while defending Bill Cosby in the case of a lifetime to representing Meek Mill as Meek became the international face of the movement for criminal justice reform. Brian also takes us back to his early days as a homicide prosecutor, obtaining a conviction in a high-profile mob case that thrust him into the media spotlight. Along the way, Brian discusses the need to get inside the jury box and humanize his client, the emotions that drive him, and lessons that he continues to learn about what it truly means to refuse to lose. Brian also shares some hilarious stories about his life in the law. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us. You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney. Sage. Visionary. Warrior. Unfiltered. No holds barred. Iron Advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself. How does uh, how does the Bill Cosby case come to Brian McMonagle? Well, it's interesting, um, Bob. The, the case actually uh, came um, from a mentor of mine, a civil litigator in Philadelphia, and the original phone call was for me to uh, get involved in an accusation in Atlantic City. Um, and the, the way the conversation actually broke was, hey, listen, I, I, I hear you're the go-to guy in Atlantic City, and uh, I had to confess that I wasn't. Um, you know, everybody's got an area that they kind of pride themselves of, of having some, some juice in, and Atlantic City just it isn't. And there's a great lawyer in Atlantic City who you well know, Ed Jacobs, and I, I, I had to tell the truth, regretfully, and refer the case to, to Ed Jacobs. And he said, well, by the way, it's a big celebrity. It's Bill Cosby. And uh, I wanted to shoot myself after referring it down to Ed. And then as fate would have it, and it's, this is great for, you know, some of the young lawyers that sometimes get calls about cases in areas where they'd love to go handle the case, but they're probably not the guy or gal to handle it. And uh, I get a call back, you know, a couple months later and Ed Jacob says, hey, listen, you know, there, there really wasn't a headache in Atlantic City, but there's a real big headache in Montgomery County. So I'm referring the case back to you. So that's uh that's how i got involved in the and and that was the beginning so pr- prior to this case coming to you brian um i mean you, you had done it all uh you tried hundreds of jury trials you've represented you know athletes musicians politicians tons of regular people what made cosby and the case different than any other boy i, I don't know that i have enough time um you know i it, 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 it's kind of, uh, it's hard to describe. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. Uh, just by way of an example, when we first learned that he was going to be criminally charged, um, we made great, went to great lengths to see, to have him flown in to uh, an airport nearby. We changed all of the, you know, codes, et cetera, to prevent the press from finding out where he'd be flying into. And when we met him at the plane, there were two helicopters waiting from the media when he touched down. 
that followed us literally to the district justice. And when we got to the district justice um, courthouse, which is just a house, as you know, uh, in Montgomery County, there were hundreds and hundreds of members of the media from, from all over the world. They were climbing on our trucks. Um, and to answer your question, it was the first time in, in my career that I felt like a kite in a hurricane. It's like being inside a movie is what it sounds like. It was surreal. It, you know, I, you know, because it, it, I, I don't really know how to describe it on a couple different levels. One, because of the pandemonium that, that I was witnessing and two, because of, of who I was sitting next to, you know, you're talking about an American icon, you, you know, Bob is right. I've, I've had the privilege of representing some people in some high publicity cases, you know, great athletes, you know, some people in, in the media, politicians, but let's face it, this was Bill Cosby. And, and the prelude to the arrest, you know, made this obviously something that, that you can't even really describe. And, and that being obviously the hysteria that had come from, you know, one morning him being one of the most popular, you know, Americans ever born. And then, you know, within weeks uh, being transformed into uh, what the media was describing as a serial rapist. And it was, uh, it was pretty unimaginable uh, in terms of just trying to get your head right in dealing with the madness, um, but we managed to do it. Was there sort of a, a slow build that had been behind that even before you got involved uh, in terms of the, the media's attempts and ultimate success in getting that deposition uh, you know, uh, unsealed, which is what kind of drove the prosecution. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, you know, the the chronology was was just amazing. There had been a, you know, there had been an allegation made, uh, you know, twelve years or so before, and um, it was investigated by the district attorney's office. District attorney decided that there wasn't enough to bring a case. Uh, sent the parties off into you know civil litigation for the most part, and. In the course of the civil litigation, obviously, there's depositions that are taken, and then the case settles, and the depositions are under seal, and then unimaginably, when uh, and how this was done, I'll never really understand. I wasn't involved in it, but the Associated Press managed to get a federal judge here in the Eastern District to unseal a deposition that was sealed by the agreement of the parties, and then all hell broke loose. Um, That deposition, uh, in combination with the multitude of women that were coming forward um, made this really something that I I don't think the world has ever seen before. I mean, this was every night, uh, documentaries, uh, Nightline, Dateline. You couldn't turn on the TV and not see an interview with with all of these women coming forward, making accusations against Mr. Cosby. And there's, you know, a district attorney sitting in Montgomery County um, running for election at the time that this is all going, going on. And it really was a perfect storm for him being charged. And, and as soon as that deposition was released, there really was a, a fait complete. And, and then um, we get a call, you know, because you're still hoping against hope that they'll make the decision that because of his age, because of his infirmity, he was blind at the time. And, and because of the, you know, the, the obvious defenses at such a case, um, that they would choose not to charge him. And we got a call, uh, I want to say it was just hours before, we needed Mr. Cosby to be in Philadelphia uh, because he was being charged that morning and they wanted him here. And we had to have him flown in from, from Massachusetts and, and then it hit the fan. 
So Brian, how do you prepare yourself mentally, psychologically, emotionally for that kind of, uh, as you described it, surreal media circus? I, you know, I don't know that you do. I think, you know, for, for any lawyer that has gone through it and will go through it, you know, I was lucky that it happened to me after years of trying cases, of being involved in some uh, significantly high profile cases, but nothing, uh, I'd be kidding you if I, I told you, really prepared me for what I was about to see. You're never prepared for what you see. You're not necessarily prepared to deal with it um, in an effective way, but you're prepared. Meaning you're never going to let anybody know that, you know, you're, you're stunned at what you're seeing. You're never going to let anybody know that you're seeing something that you've never seen before. You're never going to let anybody know that inside of you, there's a carnival going on and you're trying to show the world that everything's okay, show your client that everything's okay, and really pretend to be in the moment. Um, and and I, if I'm telling the truth, I'm telling you that, uh, you know, because let's not kid ourselves. And, and, and there may be lawyers out there that are just cut from such a great cloth that it doesn't affect them. But if I'm telling you the truth, um, I was seeing things that I'd never seen before and will never see again. And I was just trying to not let everybody know um, the way that it was affecting me. And, and I, I'd like to think I was successful yep. in doing that, but I'm not kidding myself. I probably wasn't as successful as I think. I was. So Brian, the, you're, you're, you're a guy who, who uh, from, from, from my perspective, having watched you over the years is driven by a fierce competitiveness. Um, something that churns inside of you that truly hates to lose. Um, pushing himself, you know, always to, to, toward greatness. And what you just described had to, intersect with that in, in, can you talk about, um, this, this unknown sort of uh, whatever either, or concern, fear, anxiety about balancing between what always drives you and what on earth am I going to do to, to control this and, and be able to try this case in a way that I can win it? You know, it's interesting. You're, you know, you're, we know each other, Bob, so you're right. I mean, I, 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 I hate losing more than I like winning. Um, and there's that, um, and then there's coming to the realization, which is a, it's a rare thing for a lawyer, that you don't have control. Um, I, I remember that that feeling, I think, permeated uh, this, this whole uh, kind of odyssey uh, in terms of the defense of Bill Cosby for me, because you never had control. You ne- you, every day, something was being thrown at you. Uh, the media obviously was 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 taking him apart. Uh, it it was a it was a a surgical destruction really of of an American icon. Um, and to think that you could control that w- it was probably naive on my part. Um, and it I, I didn't really find a comfort level in terms of what's important, which is getting yourself ready to go win and not lose until I realized that there were certainly going to be things every day that were beyond my ability to control. And once you realize that, now you're in the hunt. Now it's, okay, I'm on a 20-yard line. I got to get to the 10, and then maybe I'm going to get in the end zone, as opposed to how do I get to the field? How do I 
where's the stadium? Am I even, was I, was I born for this moment? And, and I, I kind of remember, you know, that as we got closer to trial, it got easier. Because the only thing I'm really good at, and I, I shouldn't say really good at, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty good at it, is, is trying cases. And when you're trying to be, um, you know, uh, a media consultant and you're trying to be, you know, a press secretary and you're trying to deal with uh, things that are way beyond your pay grade, it wears at you because you, you know that you don't have the expertise really to balance it while you're trying to get inside the stadium and win a case. And so I, I, I remember that being the challenge, which was, okay, I got to stop worrying about the other grenades that are falling around me. I got to focus on this case, dealing with my adversaries who were very worthy um, and come up with, you know, the, the, the kind of issues that, that could raise reasonable doubt. And that was the challenge. So was there a moment in particular, Brian, where you realized that there was so much here, media circus, everything else, you'd never be able to control all those factors. And you just came back to yourself and using the sports analogy, it reminds me of, of, of playing in a game where you just say, I got to play within myself. I'm not going to, I can't control all the things around me. And you just came back to you and then you got in the flow. Was there a particular like day or, or time period when yeah, that happened it, for you? It, it really was just shortly before we went to Pittsburgh to pick the jury. And I remember that we had gone on a media tour because it, we were trying to, we, we, we actually thought, the, the, the royal we thought that we needed to get out there, that we needed to get out there and make the case. And I remember going on a couple of, uh, you know, nationally syndicated shows and thinking we had done well. And, you know, there'd be a second or two, a grab, for lack of a better description, where we told a nice story for about five minutes. And then there would be five hours, you know, after that of a media barrage from any number of women or lawyers representing the women in new cases and this and that. And, you know, it was, it, we were always, I think, trying to, to, to go one bridge too far. And we, it, it was a journey that was never going to be successful. And I remember at some point in time saying, you know, what? I'm done with this. Uh, forget it. We've lost the media battle. We were never going to win it. Let's go pick us a jury in, in Pittsburgh and let's go figure out a way to win this case. And, and that really was always going to be the biggest trick because you're, you're, you're journeying into this, into this media barrage for the sake of trying to find uh, something to give to a jury pool that you will pick from one day where, where all 100 of them are not going to think that the guy sitting next to you is as has been portrayed by the media and so you're going to go out there and you're going to blow your horn. And, and what you have to realize is, is particularly in a case of that magnitude that it received the kind of what I'll call adverse publicity that I don't think ever had an equal, um, that you're never going to be able to do it. And so do what you do best. Go pick a jury. Go try and find 12 uh, that you could possibly find that'll be the least affected and least saturated by, by that barrage and try and win a case. And, and I remember it being just before 
we left for Pittsburgh to pick our jury where I basically had, had finally found comfort in, okay, now we're going to start the game. If that answers it for you. So Brian, if, if we can ask you, so what you just described is, is, you know, is fairly astounding uh, and, and sort of comes down to, I want to win when I get in the courtroom. Right. And, and, and so I got to focus on that. Can you identify things about yourself, whether they are from your upbringing, uh, whether they're from, you know, battle scars as a lawyer that, that you can specifically identify that other lawyers can take from to get to the place that you're describing? Well, if you're not enormously competitive in some measure, you have a hard time doing what we do for a living. Um, trial lawyers, you know, for them to be successful, they have to compete and they have to sometimes compete against, um, you know, insurmountable odds. And if you're not driven to win and driven to succeed, um, you need to find a different line of work. Uh, so, Brian, I don't want to interrupt you except yeah. to say this. Tell us what made you like that. Well, I, 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 it's part of my DNA. I mean, I, you know, from the time I was a kid, um, I, I was enormously competitive. And, and I, you know, I played sports. I, I, you know, I was never the greatest athlete on any team I ever played, but I, I was always, you know, uh, the most competitive. Uh, I don't ever remember being on a team in, in high school or in college where I clearly uh, wasn't the most competitive to a fault person on the team. I mean, I, I, I even have some regrets about how enormously competitive I was then. When I got, uh, you know, out of, out of college and realized that I couldn't hit the long ball, uh, and was going to have to go work for a living, uh, and went to law school, um, I was competitive. Uh, I wanted to excel. Um, and, and when I got to the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, I didn't want to be a good trial lawyer. Um, I wanted to be the best criminal lawyer in Philadelphia. I wanted to be the best district attorney uh, in the country. Uh, and I knew, because of, uh, unfortunately, my genetic makeup, that that was always going to be probably impossible. But I figured if I shot high, uh, I'd always been in the hunt, be in the hunt. And, and, and so I, I don't know it's, any, it's anything that you can teach. I don't know if it's anything that you can learn. I think it's innate. And I think if, that, if you're not by definition competitively driven, um, then you need to find a way in your life to accomplish that in order to be a successful trial lawyer. I've never met one, uh, a, a, what I would call a great trial lawyer, who's not driven and who's not competitive. Um, even when they're pretending not to be. So Brian, what took you to law school that started this whole journey? You played, I know you played baseball in college. You were very competitive there. What about the law and not some other field? Well, you know, you? it's interesting. I, I remember I was, um, I was in college and I, I, I took a, uh, a course in public speaking uh, in, in uh, first semester um, of my junior year. And um, in this, at the end of the semester, my professor asked me to come back and help teach it the next year. I, I had had some success in, in, in the class and in public speaking uh, in that class. And he kind of championed me to try to, to get involved in, in potentially law school. And um, I wasn't a great student uh, and, and, and thought, that there were more important things than, than, than studying. 
and and yet um, I found myself pretty good at this idea of speaking in public and and um, and so I became enamored with the idea of of law school. I'd always been interested in politics. Um, you know, in my house when you grew up, um, there was a picture of John F. Kennedy sitting uh, in our living room. So I, you know, I was always fascinated by great speakers, great orders. Um, so I would listen as a kid. We had this cassette tape, and I remember it. And, we, and I had a cassette of the great speeches of John Kennedy um, and Martin Luther King. And I remember as a kid being fascinated by that level of brilliance. And, and then it all kind of came together. Now I'm in now I'm in college, and and uh, I got to make some decisions about what I do, what I would want to do. And law just seemed to be something that I might be able to be pretty good at. Um, ironically, when I um, when I got to law school, um, I, I really was committed to the idea of being involved in law enforcement. Um, I had thought about going to the FBI or the Secret Service. And it was a law professor who, who rests in peace and a great man named Brian Freeman um, who convinced me that uh, it would be an enormous mistake for me not to practice law. Uh, and he convinced me that if I really wanted to be involved in law enforcement, that I do so as a prosecutor. And that's what I did, you know, got to law school and uh, was fascinated with the idea of, of being in law enforcement while, while being a lawyer. And I went to the Philly DA's office. So let me ask you a question about public speaking. So, the, and this is a question about the technical skills of a lawyer and also about how to achieve your own, you know, your potential and your own greatness. If we had a, um, a panel of blue ribbon lawyers and non-lawyers um, listening and um, we want to take you through, and they wanted to see your process of creativity. We, so we had these trial lawyers, we had psychologists, we had legal historians. They're years from now reviewing the closing in the Cosby case. And by all accounts, which you rose to the occasion and you used those public speaking skills and you had, from what I understand in our research, you had the jurors with you like every step of the way and you nailed it. And they looked into your heart and your mind and they had perfect knowledge of you and they were dissecting what you did. What would they see? You know, uh, I, I think the only way I can answer it is, is what I tried to do. Um, I remember, you know, I, I, I've always believed that you have to find some group commonality, meaning I have to be one of them. I'm, I'm outside the jury box, but I need to get inside the jury box. This was a, this was a jury that had left their homes um, from Pittsburgh and been whisked away and taken to hotel rooms and brought into a courtroom. And so I first tried to think of a way that I could have them identify with me so I could identify with that. I was staying in a hotel and eating uh, out. And I remember I kind of began the closing with, with that idea. I, I talked about being at the Shake Shack, which is not too far from the Montgomery County Courthouse, which was true. Um, and eating um, dinner uh, the night before the closing. And while I was there, and, and, and what did that do? That, that kind of let them know that I'm just like them and, and that I'm eating at Shake Shack and, you know, not at some fancy restaurant. And, and that um, while there, I saw a girl, a young girl and her father. She's a young kid, and, and he was giving her ice cream, and she was staring into his eyes. And 
I, I let them know that I was stunned by what I had saw because it reminded me of a time not so far long ago that I was with uh, my children when they were little. And I looked into their eyes in order to see me. And um, I was reminded of a time when I could do that when they were young. And when they were young and they, you look into their eyes, what do they see? They see a great man that, that, that is never, has never failed. And then as you grow older, of course, you know, you, you, they grow and they see obviously not the naivete of a child's eyes, but, but real life. And they see you for who you are and your failures and your flaws. And I then looked over to Mr. Cosby and I said, you know, now you have to understand that, you know, he has to live with the fact that for the rest of his life, his children's eyes will reflect a man that had failed as a husband, mm. uh, as, a, as perhaps a father. Um, and it, it, it's a long way of saying, I, I, I think that I have always embraced the view that in, in closing and in giving speeches to juries, that you need to two, do two things. You need to humanize your client. You, not, you need to embrace them and have them embrace you as one of them. And that's where you start. And now we're all together. We're all human beings. They failed. They've fallen down. They've dealt with adversity. You're one of them. They're one of you. And so is he. And now we can start the process of talking about this case. Because once you remove, you know, his infidelity from the case, um, and they get over that, because it was hard for them to get over that. It's Bill Cosby. He's not supposed to be running around. He's not supposed to be living this kind of a life. Once we, I got them there, I thought I could get them home or get some of them home. And so, you know, every time I give a closing, I try to find that, however I can find it. I, you know, so I, I you know, I, I will struggle sometimes to find it. I've recently tried a case, you know, in another jurisdiction. And, and you know, I, I, you got to kind of, you got to kind of jump into that jury box. The only way you're going to jump in is to be honest with them. But you got to have some some basis to jump in. You can't be a guy in an expensive suit and expect them to be listening to you for two hours. Um, so I I don't know if that's the question you you asked me, but I, I I remember that being so important to me in the Cosby case and really in every case I try. And then you spend the next hour and a half dismantling their case. But you got to get there first. Right. You 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 spoke to them not just from your head. You connected with them as people. And that's what I think a lot of trial lawyers were so used to trying to strategize and figure it out. We've, we don't do that. And you know what's funny? It, it, it's interesting because I really believe, like I, I try to create an affection with my jury. Like I, I'll be honest with you, that jury was remarkable. You know, I just stop back and think about it. You took these people, the 12 people, they go to work every day some of them older, some of them younger. They're removed from their homes. They're taken across the state. They sit in a courtroom and listen to whatever we're giving them for hours upon a time. And I admired that as an American, as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone who's you know, you know, been in this system for a long time. And so it, it's easy for me because I really do admire it. And I, and I try to, to give them you know, the truth, which is, is to tell them how much that means to me. And then maybe give them something, anything I can, I can give them that would make them think of me as something other than a criminal defense lawyer. 
whether it be a father or a husband or a friend or, you know, a, a bad, a bad college baseball player, you know, I mean, anything that's going to strike a chord with one of them will say, you know what, I wouldn't mind having a beer with that guy. Um, and, and because if you're about to, to sell stuff to somebody, um, and sometimes hard stuff, um, if, if you're not their kind of guy, they're not buying, particularly if, if what you're selling is, is hard. You know, if, if it's not black and white, if it's not the, the, you know, the, the DNA, if it's not the, the smoking gun, if you're trying to argue credibility and you're trying to argue inconsistencies and raise reasonable doubt, if, if, if they're not with you, you got a long road to go. And so I'm, I, I, I do my best. And, and I, you know, I'm, a lot of people will, will, you know, dismiss this and say, oh, God, my God, you're acting, you're, and it's true, I guess you are in, in many respects acting, but I'll never find myself not being heartfelt. Like, and I don't know if it's something I create in my mind or if it's there, if it's always been there, but I, I try to look into that box and, and find, it, it, maybe it might be in, in small numbers or large, but, but, you know, care about them a little bit, you know, and, 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 and think about them a little bit and what they're doing every day and, and how they're living their lives and the things that are important in their lives. Cause more often than not, there's not that, you know, there's not that separation that's obvious in a courtroom. And so I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm letting you know kind of where I, no, I, you're, you're I, telling I, me exactly I, what I want to know. That's kind of where I come from. Um, and it's always been very easy to me because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not unlike most jurors I look at, quite frankly, um, even though they're from different walks of life, they're from different socioeconomic backgrounds, they're of different races and sizes and colors and religions and all that kind of stuff. But at their core, you know, they all have some things in common. And I try to find that and then make sure I've got it in some way, in some story. And now we've all got something in common so we can go to work. So, Brian, how much of your ability to do that comes from how you grew up? How did you gr- grow up? Did you, did you grow up privileged? Did you grow up, you know, oh, no. I mean, struggling? Listen, tell, tell the folks how, well, how was, you grew up. Easy. It was easy. It's always easy for me. I mean, I, I grew up in a very, you know, modest middle-class household. Both my parents worked, worked hard. I don't think anybody made more than, you know, $25,000 a year. Uh, yet we lived wonderfully. Um, you know, because when my grandmother was home with us, she raised us. Um, I don't remember a time where my mother, I'm, I think my mother didn't work, um, you know, I think a week after she gave birth to both my brother and I. So, you know, that's, 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 that was our household. Um, so that's easy. And, and, and so, uh, you know, never had two cents, quite frankly, growing up and, and uh, was very lucky with, 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 you know, trying to get help from some of the colleges that I went to, to get into them and, and, and to stay in them and the law schools and the like. So it was never easy. I always worked my butt off um, while playing sports and having jobs. So that was easy. I also though, uh, which is interesting, grew up in an area that combined, um, you know, some middle-class and lower middle-class with, with some rich people. And a lot of my, you know, teammates and friends had some money. And I got a taste of that in terms of what kind of people they were and interacting with them on a level that I'd never seen before. So 
we kind of, I kind of had a, a, I think a perfect storm, if you will, of an upbringing in that you're not going to, you're, I'm never going to come across a jury that I can't relate to. Um, I played sports with, with, you know, kids of all shapes, sizes, and colors, had friends. Um, you know, my house was colorblind. So it's always been easy for me to relate to any type of juror. I practice law in Philadelphia, you know, so now coming forward, you know, I, I go to work in the Philly DA's office and I'm rubbing shoulders with detectives and, and district attorneys who are all races, men, women. Um, and, uh, and so it's real easy for me with that upbringing, with that background. Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I want to uh, try to just push a little further on you, which is that you're being real humble because the competitiveness you describe being able to get your arms around that and deliver it to jurors in a, um, you know, a a truly humble, graceful way when it's driven by this like lion inside of you that, that, that has to be hard to control. Um, you know, and, and anyone who's ever seen you close describes you as, you know, I mean, you're, 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 you're folksy, you're graceful, you're eloquent, all those things together. Talk to lawyers about how you're keeping that under control. Well, you know, you have to. I mean, I when I was a prosecutor, particularly in the early stages, I was all uh, one speed, um, and it was hard, and it was heavy, and it was powerful, and it was booming. And I remember going down, and and I you know always tell uh, folks, you know, take a ride every now and then. And I got I was one of a couple of DAs sent down to that. Uh, I don't know if it exists anymore, but it was a it was down in Houston, Texas, and it was like a top gun kind of conference for prosecutors. And I was a young prosecutor and I got a chance to see some of the best prosecutors in the country. I mean, guys from the South who, I mean, you want to talk about guys that can bring it and women that can bring it. And um, I remember so then we, we, we rolled into a competition and I kept um, winning and we got to the very end and I was going against this guy from Houston, Texas. Um, and he was a young guy too, because again, most of the lawyers were, were young and learning. And when we finished, um, I didn't win. I came in second. And I'll never forget it. One of the guys who critiqued me said, you know, Brian, I'll tell you what, you know, giving a closing speech is kind of like sex. Um, and it really depends on what kind of sex you like. And and Brian, you know, your kind of sex is <laughs> hard and fast. <laughs> and, and the winner, the winner was making love to me. <laughs> and he took his time and he built it and he built it. And he oh, built it. man. And then, and then he won me over. And I never forgot that. And I try that. I try to start off, you know, particularly closings and even in, in my cross-examination, um, Bill do it. And now I can get there. I don't want to mislead you with all humble pie and everything aside. I mean, I, you know, I, I get to point certain times in closings, particularly if I've got the ability to, to show rightness indignation to show that and to, and to shout from the, you know, from the cheap seats and, and sometimes shutter jurors. But I've found that jurors don't like to get yelled at uh, for an hour and a half. Um, and I, I, I want to blend art and compassion and feelings and aside. And so I, I've always tried to sometimes suppress the anger that I've caused myself to have in these closings, because if you don't have it, then you can't win. Um, and bring them to that point where by the end, you know, we're ready to run out 
uh, and and run out onto the field and, and win the game, or run back into that jury box and come back with a not guilty verdict. And when I was prosecutor, it, it, I finally got to that point. I, by the time I left homicide and, and, and left the DA's office, I thought I'd had, I had I had figured that out that you got to get there. And sometimes, you know, that form of, of sex is a heck of a lot better. Well, what you're describing to me is, is you're describing a kind of uh, containment and emotional control that it takes a lot of discipline to have. And I, I agree with whoever that person was that gave you that, that feedback. It's, it's a lot nicer to be made love to than just um, receive not made love, Not made love to. Not made right. love to. We'll not made love to. Let's leave it at that. Last question on, on Cosby because that case was such an iconic case. Did it change you in some way? that case and, and what did you learn from it that you, you employ now as a lawyer or as a person? Yeah, well, it, it certainly changed me. Um, I, I, th- I maybe affected me. Uh, you know, when you try a case of that magnitude and then you go through, you know, a week where a jury deliberates, the jury deliberated in that case longer than uh, it took to try it. Um, and you deal with it for a year of, of really what could only be described as, as a controlled madness uh, when you try a case of that magnitude. Um, it, it, it takes a little bit of, of you. You know, I, I always say, and I've told jurors this, and I may even told the Cosby jury this, you know, when you try these cases and you try one like that, it takes a little piece of your soul. Uh, it takes a lot of you. Um, and um, I remember I, you know, if I wasn't right, probably that summer, um, you know, and, and then, you know, not getting the opportunity to retry it and, and all the, that, that went with that. And so, yeah, I don't know that I will ever be the same. Um, I guess people who know me would be able to better say how I've changed as a lawyer. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about handling the media. Uh, I learned a lot about um, some of the people uh, that I I didn't know before that trial and uh, my adversaries. And uh, so I, you know, I don't know if I do things any differently now. Um, I think I've got the benefit of that wisdom. Um, And yeah, um, did it beat me up? 100%. But Brian, didn't is it fair to say you learned that basically you could withstand anything as a lawyer, any kind of stage, no matter how big it was? Yeah, and you know what's interesting um, about that? I never doubted that. It's funny you say that because the only times in, I hate to say it, uh, in my life where I'm really at home and I feel right is, is when I'm about to close to a jury. Uh, and I know that sounds crazy, but it it's, I feel like I'm home. I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where I'm supposed to be. And um, I, I always, I remember, I've been asked a bunch of times, are you nervous? And 
Yeah, right up until I stand up. And then it's just, I'm home. Now, what happens before? What happens after? I'm a mess. I so, mean, I'm a, I'm a mess. And I am <laughs> the poster boy for how not to be. And I've always been that way. When I was a DA, I mean, they used, to, they, used, they used to make jokes about me. I would do laps of City Hall until my jury came in. And if the jury went, went out for the night, I'd come back in the morning and continue to do laps. And I'm not sane while a jury is deliberating. Um, I'm not great in uh, pretrial. Uh, but in terms of um, where I, I feel peace, it's, it's that moment where a judge looks at you and says, Mr. Monaco, you want to address the jury? And I really feel alive. And it's the most alive I ever feel in anything I do. Even, you know, when I played sports, I, I, cause I knew I was never great. And I think, you know, if you know, you're not, you, you, you haven't, I shouldn't even say great, but you've never been perfect at something. And there are times when I get done closing where I say, I'll say to myself, man, that's as good as I've got. Um, but I'm never uncomfortable there. And I'm uncomfortable in a lot of situations in life, um, daily life, uh, parties. But that's the one place where I feel at home. So, Brian, can you do the math for me? Um, that, exhilar- that exhilaration, thrill, place of, of, of true home that you describe, as you said, comes with enormous expense. Um, looking back is every one of those closings worth all of the insides of yourself that you've left here, there, and everywhere? Do, do the math for me on that. Yeah, no, of course not. Um, you know, in my case, no. Um, you know, I, I look at some of the, the great lawyers that, you know, that we all know. And um, I always used to think, particularly once, I hate to say this, but once I got married, I, I, you know, when I was a young assistant district attorney, it was 24 seven. And then you get married, then you have kids. And then once you have kids, there are things that are bigger than you and bigger than your profession. And so, no, I, particularly early on, uh, I missed, I missed some things um, at home and with my kids that I'll never get back. And I live with that. Um, And that's, that's not something that, that, um, either that I'm proud of. Uh, I don't know that I had a great control over it. Maybe I, maybe I, I did and I just refused to admit it. But um, I think I sat, you know, when you want to practice law and you want to do it at a high level. Um, things are going to, things are going to slide elsewhere. And uh, I, I think that my regret isn't so much in, in terms of the physical toll that it's taken on me. It's probably the things I missed um, and I've gotten better at it. Uh, but you know, Bob, uh, and, and we all know, um, you, you don't get certain things back in your life. So my advice to those lawyers out there that, that are going to be involved in this at a high level and, and that are going to have families try and find that balance. I found it, but I found it late. Um, I've been blessed with, uh, you know, a great wife and, and kids, and they've always been patient with my, um, with my uh, uh, times when I'm maybe here 
physically, but not here mentally. And maybe times when I'm not even here physically. And so, um, but yeah, Bob, I, do I have regret about, about all, all the pieces that I've left all over the courtrooms in, um, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere? No. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> So Brian, we want to want to move to another question about your career, and the it's a timely question. Um, you, as a DA in Philadelphia, I believe tried a pretty high profile mob case. Did you not? I did. I assisted uh, a great lawyer named Joe Grant in prosecuting a yeah, very big mob case. I did. And uh, who was your opponent in that case? Well, we had a bunch of them. Um, you know, it was, uh, I want to say it was about eight, seven or eight defendants. It was, uh, it wow. was a mob case uh, involving a, a mob boss named uh, Nicodemo Scarfo. And it was a murder case. It was contract killing. And uh, I tried the case against, against a lot of great lawyers. Um, and uh, one of them was uh, a guy that we, we lost yesterday, a guy named Joe Seneguita, who was just uh, one of the best ever. Um, and I, I tell the story all the time about what happened in, in that trial. Um, I knew Joe from when I grew up and, uh, I actually went to high school with his son. And so we had that and he was a fierce trial lawyer and a fierce competitor. And we weren't supposed to win the case. Quite frankly, it was one of those, you know, typical mob prosecutions where you were kind of relying on, um, informant testimony for the most part, uh, didn't have any you know, tapes really to speak of that was, were helpful. Brian, I don't want to, we stop you one sec so the yes. audience understands. A mob trial like this in Philadelphia, particularly back uh, in, this was the, the mid to late 80s, yeah. right? uh, was a, it was a soap opera that played out on the front page of the paper every day, right? I mean. Oh, mob. it was, it was, that was actually my first really high profile case. And it was like nothing you'd ever seen because right. at the time, you know, there were significant uh, what we'll call mob wars going on. And it was in the newspaper every day. It was on the news every day. Um, and this, this case was particularly, um, you know, followed by the media. Sure. And, right. This was during a period of time when from like 1980 until really the end of the eighties, there was almost an annual high profile mob related execution of, of an alleged boss playing out in the newspapers. Uh, the time when, when uh, one of the alleged bosses opened a front door and his house blew up, right? That, that was during this period of time. It was, it was okay. that period of time. Yeah. So, so, so right. So, so hopefully for iron advocate, there's people across America listening to this. So I wanted to give a little bit of color. I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, you. At no, all. I, I, I should have. Yeah, it was, it was, no, really that was, that was Jeff's fault, Brian, not, not, not your fault. So you, <laughs> it was the height of it. And it was, yeah, it was, you, you really couldn't pick up the newspapers without seeing some carnage. And, uh, so this was the second of, of two mob prosecutions of the DA's office. And, and the first one had been lost and it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a significant loss. And then they took, um, this case and we decided to try this case and I got, uh, I was very young. I just got on the homicide and I got assigned to do uh, what we would call second chair in the case with a guy named Joey Grant, uh, who, as you know, is a great lawyer, great prosecutor and uh, insisted that I be something a lot more than a second chair. So I was doing a lot of the lifting during the trial. And uh, 
so the story that I, you know, that I always tell about it is, um, you know, the jury comes back, we're expecting an acquittal, and they come back um, guilty, everybody, first degree murder. And it's pandemonium. I mean, people are throwing themselves around the courtroom and it's chaos, you know, it's just, you know, typical what you'd expect back then. And, you know, it, 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 you're, I'm a young kid, I'm, I'm 26, 27. And I don't know what's going on. And, and you know, it, it, these, these, you know, this was a significant, significant case at the time. And, you know, your heart's in your mouth and the FBI's coming up and they're circling us, you know, to try and get us out of the courtroom. And I'll remember like it was yesterday, Joe Santaguita kind of, the, 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 there was like a, a path that just got cleared and everybody moved and he walked right in. And he put out his arms and he drew me close and he kissed me on my cheek. <laughs> and he said, that's from the boss. Oh, <laughs> my God. No. <laughs> the day I die, I will remember. And then he, and then he laughed, of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's funny because we lost him yesterday. And yeah. he represented a, a time of great trial lawyers that had they were characters and they had personality and they were larger than life. And they tried the hell out of cases, as you know. Um, yeah. And they did it with flair and they did it with theatrics and they did it with bravado. And they're, they're kind of gone now, you know, they're kind of going uh, one by one of them. And he was a great one and a good friend. Um, and I learned a lesson in it too, because I was always, you know, you're always concerned, particularly when you're, you know, a prosecutor, but even as a defense attorney at the end of the case, where do you stand? Where do you stand with your colleagues? Where do you stand with your adversaries? And that was his way of yeah. basically letting me know everything's all right. Yeah. Um, he was a class act. But a class act and a, and a, and a character. And uh, yeah, my heart broke yesterday for him. His, and his um, to, to, for the, the listeners out there, I, I've always called him Mr. Santa Guida. I don't never, ever called him Joe. Um, his picture hangs in the mob museum out in Las Vegas. Um, I don't know if you know that, Brian. I do know that, yeah. and it, as yeah. well it should. As well it should. Brian, we, when we were young public defenders, he would be at preliminary hearings, and a couple of times uh, we, as the defenders in the room, went before him, unfortunately. So he was critiquing us from the back. <laughs> and I remember I was a brand-new public defender, the guy was scary looking to me. Um, you know, I grew up in Oregon. I wasn't, I didn't grow up around Joe Sanguida. This guy was straight out of central casting. You couldn't find somebody in Hollywood to portray him as well as he portrayed himself. It wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't. No. Wouldn't be possible. So I remember as a young public defender asking a question that was probably <laughs> something like, are you sure my client's guilty or something as stupid as that? And, and... <laughs> just went, oh, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> commenting on everything I said. And just, <laughs> he was, he, would he was such a figure. He would heckle you. I'd try cases with him. He'd heckle uh, you if you were doing yeah. a bad job on cross. I mean, believe uh, me. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it's, uh. <laughs> It's it's Brian. Listen, we're here now. You got to tell the, the 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 story about when he when he was trying a, a a case with a group of lawyers down in federal court and 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 felt that some of the lawyers weren't performing well on their cross and wanted them to stop. Yeah, my partner um, 
was telling, we were, you know, we were commiserating yesterday when we learned of Joe's passing and he was telling, you know, the, the, the legendary story. There's a federal prosecution going on and Joe's one of the, you know, five or six lawyers defending the case and a young lawyer is up there cross-examining and my partner's sitting next to Joe and the cross-examination wasn't riveting. So Joe starts to pound the table like the end of a, you know, at the end of a round and a fight. Yeah. Yep. 10 seconds. And, and I, my, I, my partner said, I looked over, I go, what's going on? He goes, it's like a fight. It's time to, it's time to end the round. <laughs> <laughs> he said the jurors are looking. And, and the lawyer, of course, sat down on cue. Yeah. We've all had those moments where you should get the, uh, you should get the banging of the table when it's time to sit down. We sure have. So, so Brian, we got to pivot. That that's not enough. That in the last like few years that you you have had the privilege of representing Mr. Cosby. You've had also the privilege of representing uh, Meek Mill recently. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Go. Yeah. Uh, so, so I most every everybody knows, but but obviously Meek's an internationally known you know recording artist um, who became really the face of criminal justice reform. Um, literally, literally, uh, can you, um, tell us what, what that is like to become the lawyer for, uh, somebody who is in the middle of an international dialogue on criminal justice reform and race in the law? Yeah. Um, truly remarkable. And, and you start with him. Um, you know, this was a, uh, a case that was, you know, a, a violation of probation, um, that led to a, a rather unspeakable sentence. Um, and it, to understand how you go from there to what you've just described, which is the face of a movement, you have to understand the dynamics of, of what was put together. Um, and, and I was one lawyer on that case. And, and that's really the story. The, the story of that case is really how a team can be put together to, to really right a wrong and to, to change a narrative. The, the team, which consisted of, of um, you know, uh, Jordan, uh, Sev, and, and, and Pete Goldberger, and, and Joe Tacopina, uh, and, and Kim Watterson, appellate lawyers on one side, trial lawyers on another, all being really um, organized and run by um, – uh, a non-lawyer in Desiree Perez from Rock Nation, who really organized that entire team, and then spearheaded with the passion and the and the power uh, and brilliance of of Mike Rubin, who is an owner of the Sixers. And I've never been involved in a what I'll call a team uh, scenario that ever worked more effectively than that team. Um, and you know, again, Meek went from the bowels of a prison where he was going to serve a two to four year sentence to being ultimately released uh, from that sentence, from the charges being downgraded uh, to a misdemeanor and no further penalty. Um, and then walking out of prison and keeping a promise that he would go become um, the face of a movement, that he would make sure that what happened to him would never happen again. And not only did he utter the words, because it's always easier to utter the words and, and to talk the talk, but he went and walked the walk. And with the help of some of the people that I've mentioned, and, uh, you know, Jay-Z and, and a lot of great, great P 
people and reformist, um, he hasn't really spent a day uh, without trying to to make things right for other people and, and transforming the criminal justice system. And it was probably the greatest experience um, by by the time it ended that I've ever had. Not that there weren't good days and bad days. There were there were a ton of bad days, more bad days than good days. Uh, but I learned an enormous amount about what I didn't know. Um, you know, I know a lot about trying cases. And the, the beauty of that experience had less to do with the, uh, you know, uh, a trial or a jury trial, but about how to get through an appellate process, how to transform message with the media, how to take someone from being, you know, just another convicted defendant to um, the face of a movement. And, it, it, you know, I wish I could say that, that I played a large part in that. Um, as to that part, um, remarkably brilliant people, again, who are, are not even lawyers, uh, were able to really make a movement um, out of a tragedy. And uh, it was remarkable. Well, Brian, what, what would you be able to say about, you know, you mentioned Mike Rubin and Desiree and Rock Nation folks. What would you, if you were trying to impart those lessons to lawyers listening to this who are really trying to maximize their potential, what was it about the mindset that they had that was so unusual and so winning? Well, I mean, start with the fact that they, that you talk about refusing to lose. They're, they're, losing was never an option. Um, not working 24 hours a day was never an option. I mean, you know, as I said before, we think we're traveling pretty fast in Philadelphia, you know, 70 miles an hour, you know, they're cruising at a hundred and their brains work that way. You know, they're, they're operating at the highest levels of business and they're problem solvers and they've never run into a problem that they can't solve. And as criminal lawyers, we sometimes run into problems we can't solve and we just, we stop trying to solve them and you get lazy and you give up. And I, I think... I, more than anything, they inspired me that you can work harder, you can work better, you cannot take no for an answer, you can think outside the box. Um, you know the things that they thought of in in terms of, you know, they're they're managing in their businesses, you know, fifteen different things at a time. They're not going into a courtroom and sitting in it all day and figuring out a way. So what the, the brilliance of being able to take by, by, you know, one strand at a time, something that's beneficial. Let's get a bus and let's send buses around Philadelphia that say freak meat, free meat. Let's put it on billboards. Let's start a dialogue here with some, um, you know, news stations. Let's, let's create and recreate a narrative on the media end. And then in the appellate end, having some, you know, brilliant appellate geniuses uh, who I've just, you know, kind of mentioned, along with some really good trial lawyers. I mean, you know, Jordan, Joe Tacopina, and I'd like to thank myself, you know, all of that wisdom coming together uh, on the legal end, uh, trying to solve a big problem. Um, and listen, let's, let's not kid ourselves. You know, at the end of the day, we got, we got lucky uh, in that, you know, we were able to, the, the legal end of it really got facilitated by um, the good graces of the district attorney of Philadelphia. Who, who never, even from the beginning when it was before Mr. Krasner, a former uh, DA of Philadelphia, and now and then Larry Krasner, um, 
you know, never, ever, ever wilted from their position that they first took, which was this guy shouldn't be in jail. This guy shouldn't be on probation. Let him go out and earn a living and, and do what's right for his family. Um, but on the other end, the, the higher end of, of watching this team put together, once you think you've got it figured out, take a ride up to New York and go into a conference room with Rock Nation or go meet Mike Rubin or people like them and really figure out that you don't have any of it figured out. And, and it inspires you to, to think differently, um, to, to not be satisfied. Um, we all get into that rut. Uh, I've been guilty of it. I was guilty of it in that case, um, getting ready to give up. And, um, you know, when you start dealing with people who refuse to lose, then you do too. Now, Brian, as part of that strategy, the refuse to lose, uh, you guys took a really public and hard line stance with the judge, the trial judge who had sentenced him to this, uh, uh, you know, exceedingly uh, uh, now what appears to, you know, to be excessive, you know, uh, sentence on this probation violation. Um, that's in a courthouse that's your home court. And um, can you talk about, um, you know, how you handled that and uh, what impact it, it had on you, whether or not you ever, you know, took a deep breath and said, is this the right course action or just this is where I got to go because this is what's right for the client, of course. You know, what's interesting is, is that the one thing that the team was always mindful of was that dynamic. And so, Brian, we we will have have you know people listening from all over the country. Can you take us to half a step back and and tell folks who may not know what he got sentenced to the four years yeah. for, and and what some of the background was with Judge Brinkley, uh, who he had had a long sordid uh, history with. Yeah, I mean, he'd been on probation forever, um, really most of his adult life for a a case he, he really caught as a, as, a, as a kid. He received a sentence, and then there was a series of, of what we'll call technical violations of that probation. He was never arrested and convicted of a crime again, but he was not um, meeting up to the requirements of the judge who was you know, uh, his sentencing judge, and he was violated many times over the years um, for one thing or another, but mostly technical violations of probation, and he ended up being on probation for most of his life at a time when he was employing people, um, you know, had become a, a great- He was exploding team. on the national and, and then international and, scene. And he kept finding himself being brought back to court because of one thing or another. And, and some of them, you know, as, as Meek would say, were, 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 were self-inflicted and some of them were just nonsense. And when I got it, um, he had been in a couple of encounters uh, where, you know, really minor kind of interactions with folks um, and a positive drug stream uh, I think one of them was like riding wheelies on his on his motorcycle. Uh, another was an incident in an airport, but all of which were technical violations of probation. And the probation department, to their credit, and the district attorney's office was telling the judge, um, "Listen, he's doing great. Um, th- these are these are not the kind of infractions we want him violated for. Uh, he's going to work. He's employing people. He's doing magnificently in his career. Let's 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 not violate him." Um, and in the first time that I've ever had that experience in, in 25 years, the judge completely ignored everything the probation office said, ignored everything the district attorney said, obviously ignored everything I said, and unimaginably gave him a two to four year state prison sentence. And for those that don't know, that's state prison um, for uh, at best technical violation of probation. Um, 
And that's what drove it. And that's what started it. And we started there uh, with our teeth on the floor. Uh, and then, uh, you know, every day. And, you know, as Cosby was every day, this was every day because he didn't belong there. And, you know, there's nothing worse, nothing worse than having a client suffering when he's not supposed to. Um, you know, I've had lots of cases before, won a lot, lost. Um, and I can't imagine what it would be to lose for an innocent man. Um, that's the first and closest time I ever came to that feeling, which is this right. is a wrong, a wrong. Right. And so getting back to your point, um, you know, did this ever come to a point where I was publicly and uh, doing things and saying things uh, about the court, which I've never done in 25 years? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 and, and it's nothing that I take great pride in uh, or great joy in. But when you see someone suffering who's not supposed to suffer, um, it changes everything. It really does. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Bri, um, can you talk? We, we'd be remiss to let you go without asking you about um, your partners. Um, you, you have built and maintained a, a firm and a practice that that's really unique in its success and cohesiveness and the relationships there. Um, can you can you talk to uh, to our people about uh, how you've pulled that off, what it's meant to your success, and anything you can offer to folks that may want to emulate it and say, "Gosh, I'd I'd love to be able to have my stuff be this successful and and stay together and stay healthy." Yeah, you know, I I. You're right, and, and and we are a little bit of an unusual um, firm in that regard, in that we've been together uh, seamlessly for a few decades, and um, I, and we're a small group, and and, and I, the, the thing that has worked for us, Bob, is is friendship. Um, you know, we started as friends, and then became Fred Perry and I became. Uh, law partners. We decided decided to start a firm with Walt McHugh and Dave Meshack and others. And there were great um, friendships at the beginning of that. And we're all kind of the same type of guy. Uh, you know, I've spent a few seconds talking about what I'm like. Fred has a very similar, if not, um, you know, more extremely um, Philadelphia experience in terms of growing up in Philly, going to Frankfurt High, um, you know, not coming from money. Um, and so we're, we're enormously alike. Um, and it never occurred to me uh, along the way that his success wasn't mine and mine wasn't his. And if you can have that, if you can have a relationship that's kind of born out of that kind of friendship, it can survive anything. Uh, you're going to have good times. You're going to have bad times financially. You're going to have cases that you win and cases that you lose, and you're going to be on top and then you're not on top. And that's going to happen to every firm everywhere in the country. But if you can have that kind of respect and relationship um, where you're really rooting for each other. Um, you know, I keep talking about team stuff and we keep going back to the sports analogy, but it really is, it's, it's kind of that, you know, it's like having a great team where everybody's really good friends and so, and there's a fierce loyalty there. Um, you know, we're very fiercely loyal to each other. Our families are close. 
And so, you know, uh, we've had our mothers working for us. I mean, I, I always used to make jokes that we'd had my mother making meatballs in the, you know, in the back room while his mother's frying eggs and, and peppers. And uh, it's that kind of setup. I know that, that that's probably an exaggeration, but um, it's, it's, always, it's always been more important that we were friends than we were uh, business partners. And somewhere along the way, um, we became great business partners. Brian, that's a good place to stop. It was inspiring to hear about the your mindset because those of us who've been through it, it's um, it's the human parts of it, the empathy and the connection with the people that that have driven your career, and it's you know you've been extremely successful doing it the right way. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and and again, my my best to you and your families during these difficult times. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in. Breathe out. And we'll see you next time.